I brought my thumping Bible today. There are some uh, old school Church of God people in the house who are like, oh, here it comes. Nah, I'm just kidding. So good to see all of you. Hey, I want to um, say something real quick about the discipleship class coming up in, in January. Um, Thursday the 13th, I think, is the starting date of that. <clears throat> um, one of the things that has struck me over the years of having this job, um, but also just simply being a Christian, is we, we tend to toss this word di- disciple around without really having any sense of what it means. <laughs> and uh, um, for some people, it means going to church. Okay, that's a good place to start, but um, disciple, I think, means something a little bit more than that. And um, this is going to be an opportunity to kind of, well, do two things. First of all, have a better understanding of what discipleship actually is, and more importantly, how you can be one uh, in a very distracted world. How many would you, of you would agree that it's kind of a distracted world? And it's been that way for a while, right? Yeah, so um, this is going to be a run at this idea of, hey, how do we actually be disciples? And um, what that actually means, not just for Sunday to Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. Because my firm belief is, that this is not church. This is celebration. Church is what happens the rest of the week because you, the church, right? This is the church gathered, but every, every other day is the church distributed. And that's where rubber actually meets the road. And so we want to take that seriously. So I encourage you, uh, I think the registration just came out this Wednesday, if I remember right. And um, in the course of that registration, when you sign up for it, if you have questions or comments, uh, after you register, there's a little comment box that will 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 get to me, and um, if there's any specific questions that I can address, um, we'll do that. I, I think it's going to be nine weeks. I don't know. Jesus might show up and we might go longer. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but I think eight or nine weeks is kind of where I want to start and just um, uh, kind of get us thinking a little bit more, and I think getting us into some cer- uh, into certain practices to help us be better disciples. Does that make sense? Uh, so, there's the, there's the commercial, there's the announcement. Let's uh, turn um, our attention to the Thumpin' Bible <laughs> for a little bit. So, uh, glad that you're here, glad you're here online. For those of you who are watching, um, again, if this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. My name is David, I will be your guide for the next 30 minutes. I will be the Rudolph to your Bible Santa sleigh. <laughs> Sorry coffee hasn't kicked in yet. It's all right. Some of you will get that later. I know. I'm just kidding. All right. So uh, I am glad that you're here. We're working through Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. Um, It's been an interesting uh, exploration, I think, because of the nature of the gospel, the nature of the story that we're reading, this biography of Jesus, tends to be the most Jewish of all of them. Um, We get a little bit in Mark, but it's interesting to me that Matthew often borrows from Mark, except here, because Mark is not interested in the birth narrative, uh, Matthew and Luke are, for the most part. But it's an interesting um, uh, kind of connecting point from the New Testament back to the Old Testament. Frankly, I think this is the reason why uh, the ancient um, uh, teachers, the the, the people responsible for canonizing the work, actually included Matthew at the beginning, because Matthew's not the first gospel written, Mark is. 
Mark is the most ancient of all of the of the four gospels. Matthew came a little bit later, but because it's so Jewish, I in in my mind, that's probably the reason why it occupies the first first position when we when we talk um, about the New Testament. So uh, I, I like to see those kinds of connections. Um, last week, um, we got to see Matthew <laughs> give us this matter-of-fact birth, right? And they gave birth to a son, and he named Jesus. I mean, it's just very matter-of-fact. There's not a whole lot of, of uh, fanfare like you find in Luke. There's not a whole lot of theology like you find in John. It's just, there it is, right there. Um, Joseph was faithful. It's very no-nonsense. So today I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to continue on after the birth and see what, what Matthew has in mind for us. Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read it through and then we're going to examine it a little bit. We'll put it under the microscope, um, take a look at this. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, I'm going to begin Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. (laughs) Yeah, can only imagine. And all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Remember, we had talked about this a few weeks ago. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. I can't help but read that without a little bit of sarcasm. Okay, I just I can't help it. All right, after they had heard uh, the king, they went on their way. And the, uh, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return, return to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord, and we believe it. <clears throat> so let's take a look at this uh, in a little more detail. It's a familiar story, right? I mean, you've heard this. You grew up in the church. You've, you've heard this many times. The thing that I remember about this the most is um, <laughs> when I was in, I don't know, probably sixth or seventh grade, maybe fifth or sixth, I don't remember what it was, my church uh, had a, a Christmas pageant. Did you all have Christmas pageants in your church? Yeah, okay. And uh, the older boys um, got to be wise men. I'm not sure why. Yeah, wise cracks. That's probably right. That's very true. Uh, the younger boys got to be shepherds, but older boys got to be wise men. And I remember the day that I got to be a wise man. And the weird thing was, <clears throat> is that I had my dad's bathrobe on, <laughs> You didn't know this, but Wiseman wore plaid. (laughs) 
And I had big 1980s glasses, man. And so I kind of looked like one of those sheiks from the desert, right? Kind of a thing with these big glasses carrying my, I don't remember if it was gold, frankincense, or myrrh. I don't recall. Um, I'm sure there was an argument at some point about who was carrying what, but, you know, there we were walking up the aisle to, to, um, to baby Jesus. But it's a familiar story, and we, we've seen this, and I, but I think we need to pick this apart a little bit because there's some interesting things that are in here um, if, we're, um, if we're paying attention to the Jewish nature of this. But, and by the way, did you notice that there's not three kings mentioned? Not three kings, magi. We three kings from Orient are, right? No, there's, you know, I, tradition has it that it's between four and seven, believe it or not. But uh, apparently, uh, nobody wanted to sing seven verses of a Christmas carol at one point. So they just got it down to three. So anyway, <clears throat> so here we go. Let's read, let's read this again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is interesting. We're going to come back to that. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. <clears throat> okay, so first and foremost, the mention here is of Bethlehem, and of course, we're going to see this in a moment because that's what was prophesied earlier, uh, like 300 years earlier. But the one that we need to pay attention to here is the person called King Herod. And I think this is um, interesting because Herod was a very popular name and there was all kinds of different Herods. Um, this happened to be one of them. This is Herod the Great. I wonder if he gave the name to himself. I don't know that, but it's Herod the Great. That's what um, history calls him. And Herod uh, himself was a fascinating man. He ruled somewhere between about 35 to 1 BCE, before the, the Common Era. So that 35-year span before, um, before Jesus was there. So he was well into his reign um, when Jesus came on the scene. Keep that in mind. Um, he was known for massive building projects. Like he'd build cities and he'd build ports and he'd build roads. And he essentially was a puppet king of Rome. And so he was kept in, in power by the Roman government. And so massive building projects were you know, really good for him, not only for his people economically, but for him personally, uh, because uh, Rome liked roads. All roads lead to Rome. The reason why they say that is because you can move armies on very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uniform roads. And that's a big deal when you're an empire. Make no mistake, empire is always tied to military movement, always, okay? So here we have uh, this um, particular puppet king, he's doing massive types of building projects. Um, but he was also a tyrant. Good to know, right? He was in power and wanted to be in, in power, and this is the reason why he was so disturbed when somebody else shows up on his doorstep asking for a different king that wasn't him. Imagine that. It's your capital, and here are these guys, and they're all talking about another king. One scholar uh, that I read a long time ago um, put it this way. He had, Herod, a brilliant reign over the wrong group of people at the wrong time. Other than that, he would have been an absolutely brilliant type of king, which I find kind of an interesting comment to make about an individual. Um, but the reason why it's in here is it's a helpful historical placement 
It helps us get a, a, a place setting for when all of these things occurred, uh, which is rather useful. But then um, they say, you know, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? And, and there's Herod going, well, that's me. What, what are you talking about? Kind of a thing. And yes, they were disturbed because power likes to hang on to power. And here's the other factor, and this is the one that we don't pay close enough attention to. Rome does not like instability. Keep that in mind. Rome does not like this at all when there's an um, an unstable part of the empire. And so he knows this. His job is, is on the line. And so now that there's a potential usurper, this is a big deal that he has to address. So moving on, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Because remember, this had been a topic of conversation for some 300 years. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, right? And you'll remember, because we had talked about this before, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is Micah 5.2. It's also helpful to know that Micah is in the school called the Isaiah school. So his language kind of echoes a lot of what we read in Isaiah. So sometimes what you'll find in the Bible is they'll quote Isaiah and it's really Micah because Micah was part of the same school. Okay, does this make sense? So keep that in mind. So these will shepherd my people. Now here's an interesting, uh, interesting thing. First of all, Bethlehem, there's, there's two things here we, we need to mention. Bethlehem was the birthplace or the city of who? David. David is associated with Bethlehem because he grew up around that region, okay? And David was also a shepherd. Bethlehem was the primary place for raising sheep to be used in the temple. So when you've got the prophet talking about who will shepherd my people, that makes sense in Bethlehem. And oh, by the way, that's also a royal city. There is just chock full of Old Testament things that are going on here. Keep that in mind, okay? So, they quote this to uh, old King Herod, and obviously he's still a little bit disturbed, right? Then Herod called the Magi secretly. Ah, here it starts. Here's the intrigue. Called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Because remember, they had been traveling for a while, and there's no high-speed rail, and there's no airplanes. We're talking camel power at this point, okay? So he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go worship him. Yeah, your definition of worship and mine are two totally different things, I think. And so um, we have this secret meeting that goes on. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. This is the part of the story where the tension is building. There's something that's going on here, kind of a storyline within the grander story that Matthew is writing. And so they had heard the king this point they're pretty sure he doesn't know what's going on so they continue on their journey and go right back to what they knew is following the star which is a, it's a good idea i think 
When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I want you to notice something. It says that they saw the child, not the baby. It's a different word, okay? They saw the child. Tradition has it that they showed up when the child was about two-ish, okay? And there's reasons for that. We're going to talk about that next week. So that's called a hook. You've got to come back to hear that part, okay? So um, the child was about, about two years old. And if, if they saw the star when the child was born, that means they had been traveling two years. And I get really frustrated when I have to travel 12 hours to go see my daughter, <laughs> right? They're going to go two years to try to get to this. Now, whether or not they were actually on the road for two years, well, that's another story entirely. But, but ultimately speaking, you can see that this took a great deal of commitment for this group of, of wise people to go and find this king. And not only commitment, they had to think that it was incredibly important. <laughs> I just think it's kind of funny that, you know, they show up and they're like, happy birthday. Yeah, you're a little late, <laughs> but it's okay. Because in my Christmas pageant as a kid, um, the Magi showed up just after the birth, Right? in their plaid, dad, bathrobes, <laughs> whatever it was. It's a long trip. <clears throat> and then notice this in verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. There's a couple words in here that are worth paying attention to. Warned is Cremazio, which is just fun to say. It almost sounds like an Italian dish, but it's not. It's a warning. But it really means something else than just a warning. And when we think of, of the word warning, it's, it's really easiest to think of, you know, like bells and whistles and klaxons and stuff to try to get our attention. But the word here means a divine command or revelation. It's very often used when we are taught from heaven. So here, the idea is, yes, they were warned, but really this was a divine revelation for them to get to do something. It's a big deal, and they recognized that. And it was warned, and they were warned in a dream. Um, by the way, that word is onar. But I want you to consider this passage in Job. I think this is an interesting thing. Job makes this comment, for God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it, in a dream, in a vis vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and to keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. I find this fascinating because Job is probably the most ancient of all material we find in the Bible. It predates much of what we know about Israel. It's an old, old story. And I think what happened was when the ancient um, Jews were putting together their, um, their canon. 
they, they chose this because there's so much truth in it, but because it had lasted for such a long time. And here we have this ancient material telling us that God speaks to us in dreams. Human beings have known for millennia that God finds that place to speak to us between sleep and awake. When our own brains are maybe a little more open to the things that he has to tell us. This is not new. This is something very, very ancient. An ancient practice of God. So pay some attention to your dreams. Now, let's be honest. Some of your dreams are just your subconscious working some stuff out, right? Or um, maybe um, your dreams are have something more to do with what you ate or drank the night before, right? There's this old Bugs Bunny cartoon where Bugs Bunny wakes up and he's looking really bad like he had a rough night. And he says, that's it. I'm never going to mix radish juice and carrot juice again. Because sometimes what we eat affects how we sleep and what we dream. <clears throat> but it might be the Lord speaking when, when our distractions are when distractions are, are not keeping us, are not obstacles for him. I have a friend, uh, pastors a church nearby in Cushing. Um, he called me up, uh, this was a couple months ago. <clears throat> he had had a dream. And uh, the dream, it was very clear he was in some type of either a house or a church building. He wasn't sure exactly what it was, but it had been completely gutted by fire. And he says, the problem was is that I was looking at these charred remains, but on the floor above us, there was water, a great pool of water, and it was dripping down. And he says, and then I kept on going, and I came across three bathtubs. And he goes, what does that mean? And I'm like, I have no idea. You need to be careful what you eat before you go to bed kind of a thing. But he's been, he's been working with this for a while because he was fairly certain that the Lord had, had spoken to him, um, things for him to pay attention to. And uh, a couple of other people that are within our um, circle of, of pastors uh, who are more gifted in prophecy than I am had, um, had a chance to speak into that, which is really fascinating. Um, and he really has this sense that the burned out part is the church. I don't know if that's his church or if it's the church in general. I think it's probably the church in general. And while he's looking at this devastation in front of him, which could be because of, you know, lockdowns and pandemics and all of that, and, but there's this great pool of water, and, and typically speaking, when we talk about water, we're talking about the Spirit of God getting ready to rush into this. I don't know. But he's paying attention to his dream, and as we know, as we know, it is an ancient practice of God. This whole section um, in Matthew underscores the Jewish nature of Matthew's work. I mean, these are skeptical Jews. He's not just writing to Jewish people, he's talking to, to people who are skeptical. Yeah, 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 we've heard the Messiah story before. I'm not sure this is it, but he's, he's really doing a good job. He's tying it to the Old Testament. 
He uses Micah's prophecy. He talks of dreams. These are all things that ancient Jews would have understood. But what I'm interested in here, and, and have been for some time, I'm interested in the, the Magi themselves. Magi were this kind of class of mystic religious scholars that grew up, um, that arose out of the East. I'm going to talk about that here in a second. Um, their, their, their origin, as stated in, in Matthew, is in the East. It's an interesting thing. Because remember, Matthew likes to connect his work to Jewish history. The Magi arose out of the mystic traditions in Babylon and in Persia. So, let's keep this in mind. So imagine a map, if you can, of the Middle East. And you know where Israel is. But if you go kind of slightly north and then go east, you are in modern-day Iraq and Iran, which would have been ancient Assyria, ancient Babylon, and ancient, ancient Persia. And it's that region of the world where we see the rise of this mystic tradition um, that here they're called magi. <clears throat> now, what do you think might be significant about that? This is a great question. What would be significant about the East and about that part of the world? Well, if you know anything about um, ancient Israel's history, you are aware of something called the exile. There came a point, 586 BCE, before the Common Era, when the Babylonians swept down out of their homeland and overran all of ancient Israel. And what did they do? They carried off the best and the brightest of Israel into Babylon and exiled them there to teach them the ways of Babylon. Now, some of you have heard me say this before. The Babylonians were, um, they were really bad dudes. Um, they would often do this. They'd overtake a country and they'd pick up all of the leaders and they would move them to another part of the empire. Why? Because they're not familiar. They have to resettle. They've got to learn new things. And, and because of that, they're less likely to actually raise a rebellion. You keep them in their same country, eh, you run that risk. So just move them, a lot of them. And so Babylon would do this. And then they would take their, their best and their brightest and they would, would teach them the ways of the Babylonians. <coughs> and, of course, this is where we get the book of Daniel. Daniel is one of these individuals, as well as his three friends, Shadrach and Benny. Oh, wait, sorry, that's Veggie Tales. Doesn't count. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those particular individuals. That story is about these Israelite best and brightest moving to Babylon, being in exile. But consider what Matthew is saying here. Consider this deeply. I think this is really important. At one point, Babylon took Israel's best and brightest. And here in this story, Babylon's best and brightest are being released to Jesus. Let that sink in. A complete and utter reversal of something so horrible in Israel's history. Redeemed in a dramatic way. They're headed to Jesus. What a twist. 
Oh, and isn't it interesting that these pagan scholars recognized the birth of a king when the Jewish elites and intelligentsia just missed it. Why do you suppose that is? Well, primarily because the Magi actually watched the sky. They were at some level ancient astronomers and astrologers because the gods, the deities, spoke to their people through signs and wonders within the sky. You recall Daniel chapter 1 where he's learning these things. Astrology. And I think there's something here that we have to be um, real careful of because I want you to not have fear of other ideas, of other philosophies, or other religions. You follow Christ. You follow Jesus. You follow God and see what he does in the midst of all those things. I'll never forget, um, this was several years ago, we went to, to see an acupuncturist. I love acupuncture. Some of you who hate needles are probably like, you know, getting really uncomfortable, but I rather enjoyed it. Uh, I learned a lot about, you know, my own body going through acupuncture. But one of the things that struck me as I walked into this room is that there were all kinds of pagan symbols in there (laughs) from different religions. And there was this little part of me that says, is this okay? Is this all right? And then I realized all truth is God's truth. And if it's true, then it's God's truth. And if there is truth in the fact that my body flows in a certain way and these people can help me, that's all right because ultimately I know the king of kings and it doesn't matter what idol is sitting there, I'm not worshiping that. I am worshiping the one who has created my body the way that it is. And how on earth can I ever be part of the redemptive story if I'm not engaging with people who think differently than I do? It's called an echo chamber and it's really dangerous. Have you noticed now that means you have to be careful. Don't, you know, you're not jumping headlong into this stuff, but at the same time, Daniel and his companions did not have to be afraid because they followed God. Neither do you. I think that's an important thing to remember. But let me suggest that there is something even more ancient Matthew might be nodding towards. He's a clever guy. I think sometimes we open these books and we think that, well, these are old writers and so they're not very sophisticated. Oh, but they are. And I think this is one of those times. I want you to see this. This is in Genesis chapter three. So the Lord God banished him, this is Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the what side? East side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way uh, to the tree of life. Now, please understand, cherubim are not the little baby angels because that would not be intimidating. Little baby angel, little flashing sword, prob- probably not, not intimidating. Cherub- cherubim, however, um, if we look at the ancient record, were actually like sphinx. So head of a human being, body of a lion, wings of an eagle, pretty terrifying. That's a cherub, Okay. So cherub is singular, cherubim are are plural. So there's not just one cherub, there's a whole bunch of them, and there's a flaming sword. Pretty sure you're not going to go back there, right? But it's east. It's east. Here's the other thing. Later on, Genesis chapter 4, Cain went out of the Lord's presence. Cain, the one who killed his brother, right? Went out of the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod. Where? East of Eden. 
So they were already out of Eden when all of this took place, and he's moving further east. And by the way, the word Nod, the land of Nod, its root is vagrancy or wandering. He was in the land of wandering east of Eden. See where this is going? Really interesting stuff. And here, what we see in Matthew's work is that those who were in the east were heading back towards God. The wandering is over. Because the star gave an announcement to the king of kings, there's no need to wander anymore. And here you have an ancient group of people who understood that quicker than anyone else and responded appropriately in the only way they knew how was to bring treasure into worship. Might be something you want to write in your journal. Maybe... um, Maybe you're finding yourself wandering a little bit. It's easy to do right now, isn't it? I mean, we live in this divided, very confused world, and I think a lot of us are asking a very important question. Where do I fit? Because I'm not sure that things like, you know, politics are a great way to categorize. Don't get me wrong, you gotta do politics, I get it, but there's this part of us that are going, yeah, I don't like this and I don't like that either. I'm not sure where I fit. Economics might be confused and where's the economy going? Or maybe you're wandering a little bit emotionally. Um, There's a lot of stuff that's happened. (laughs) Maybe you're wondering spiritually, hey, where's God right now? (laughs) Yeah, been there too. You might be wandering in your work or your living or whatever. And it may not feel like you're actually wandering, wandering. It might feel like you're just like, I'm not sure what to do next. Yeah, that, that's, that's wandering. Just kind of where you are mentally. I don't know. Or maybe there's a big decision you have to make and you're wandering around and you're wondering how you're going to make that decision or... I want to suggest to you that during the Christmas holiday, despite the busyness, despite the lights, despite the (laughs) distractions, there's this child king that's calling for you to come and find him. Now here's the deal. You may actually have to go search for him. But he's there and he's calling. For you, it may not be a star. It might be something else. But the point is, this same child king is calling to all of us. And what happens is when you chase him, you will see him, you will see that star, and you will be overjoyed. It may not happen all at once. But when you see those signs that God is present and God is active, joy naturally 
follows. It may be a word from someone else. It may be a moment that you experience. It might be a sign or a wonder. Hey, wouldn't that be cool too? All of those things are on the table because this is the king of kings. And he is all about doing crazy stuff to get your attention. And when you see that moment, when you're, when you're chasing after God and you finally get into his presence and you experience that and that joy comes up, the only appropriate thing to do is to worship. And you will. You will worship in that, emo- in that moment and you might find that your wandering is over. Let's pray. God, ancient stories that still have incredible relevance for us today. I just, you know, every year we crack the Bible open again and we reread these stories about your birth and we're so grateful that, that you came and that you had us in mind and, and yet we see this grand narrative that's been at play for, for so long and we get to be a part of that. And my prayer, Lord, is that every single one of us, as we're, as we're gathered, as we're singing these, not only the worship songs, but also the Christmas carols, the things that are fo- so familiar to us as we go shopping and as we in- enjoy the Christmas tree and lights and the traditions and all of the other distractions that go along with it, God, I, I pray that in the midst of it, this all would come into our hearts as a single gift that you gave to us that still is a gift today. And that we would take seriously that gift. And I recognize, Lord, as, as people are, are seated here, I, you know, this is one of those times a year where it can be great and it can also be incredibly frustrating or very sad depending on the circumstances that people have, have gone through. But Lord, you're good and the wandering is over. And so I pray that even as we sing and um, we enjoy our time together, we would hear that call deep within our souls to connect with you and that we would chase after your presence that we would find you and it would settle us in a very deep way that causes us to be overjoyed thank you God for all these things for what you're going to do in Jesus name Amen